0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here. And uh, it's my privilege to give you God's Word today. We are moving along in our series in the book of Nehemiah. So I invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter 9. I'll be covering essentially the entire chapter, but I'll be reading for us this morning only the first five verses as the introduction to this chapter. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. This is God's Word for us. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood to confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Joshua. Kadmiel, Shabnai, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites Joshua, Kadmiel, Bani, hashabnea Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah and Pethahiah said, "Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise." And this is God's word. Please take your seats. Essentially, the rest of uh, chapter 9 is really that blessing that keys off from verse 5. And that blessing comes in the form of praise and adoration, but also a confession of their sin. And if you read through this more carefully, what they essentially do is they retrace the entire history of Israel from a very specific time all the way up into the point where they arrive into the, the temple in the book of Nehemiah. But I want to focus on a couple of themes here from this passage. As we've been looking at the story of Nehemiah, and what I've been trying to convey to you is that Nehemiah is at the end of the day, not a story about rebuilding the wall, it's about rebuilding the people. It's not about trying to construct this architectural feat of magnificence, but it's trying to restore a relationship between God's people and himself. And what we're noticing here in chapter nine is that what's absolutely crucial to this spiritual restoration, this spiritual cultivation, is going to be the word of God. The Bible seems to take primacy of place in the life of Israel, starting with chapter 8. They had a big worship service that was a revival. Then they had a wonderful Bible study at the second half of chapter 8. And now they're looking at the Word of God with another service in the beginning of chapter 9. But the Word of God is essential to the spiritual life and cultivation of God's people. Today, in this passage, another service, as I mentioned, And you may be wondering, even right now, in our service here that started at 10 o'clock, how long has it been and how much longer do we have to go? But I want to tell you that this service that they've had here in 9, chapter 9, this worship service was six hours. Six hours. That's what they mean by a quarter of the day. They often say that modern people like you and me, especially in America, in an individualistic Western society, are a people driven by the clock. We're always trying to be efficient and proficient and productive. And we're always looking at our watch to see what time it is so we can maximize and squeeze out every minute that we can. And what we see here in Nehemiah 9 is that different cultures are very different. They're not as so clock-oriented as much as they're relationship-oriented. And so this is a six-hour service that we can tell as far as we can go was pretty easy for the people. Three hours of Bible reading... Three hours of confession and worship. But here's the thing, friends. What we're going to consider here today is that in this six-hour service, we're going to unlock a key to spiritual formation and spiritual cultivation, spiritual vitality. Because in a way, you can be honest and real about the circumstances of your life like they are, the sin, the evil, the hardship. And yet, you can transcend your circumstances in joy, peace, and worship. And if you're honest, that's something that all of us wish we could have, to be honest about the hurt and the brokenness and the frustration that we have in life and people, but yet not let it grip us to such a degree that it identifies us and devastates us. We wanna be honest about the hurt and the relationships and the emotions that we all feel in the felt circumstances, but yet we want an ability to transcend our circumstances so we can survive and persevere. And essentially the way to do that is captured and told to us in the passage here today. This key to unlocking this spiritual formation that you could be empathetic and loving, compassionate and honest about who you are, but yet don't let that grip you and devastate you that on some level you could suffer well and transcend your circumstances. So if you want the ability to do this, then the passage gives us at least a paradigm to be able to think about how to do that. And what Nehemiah is showing us is that the real key is through this great confession. Learn how to confess. And we're going to look at specifically two ways to do this, because we have this in our service every Sunday as well. If you want a spiritually vibrant, spiritually and healthy, cultivating life, a spiritual uh, vibrancy in the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage is for you. It's one long prayer. It's one long confession. But basically, you have two components. So our two points here today is this. One, the confession of our praise. And secondly, the confession of our sin. That spiritual vitality, that's the way you cultivate this relationship. That's the way you can be empathetic about the brokenness of this world and yet confident because you know that God has your life in his hands. One long confession broken up into two parts, adoration and sin. A confession of our faith, like we do every Sunday, and a confession of our sin. And if you learn how to do this well, then you'll begin to cultivate a spiritually vibrant life that allows you to be joyful and at peace and secure in the midst of circumstances. So let's look at this together. The confession of our adoration, our faith, our praise. More broadly, when we think about this worship service, you can think about it like a conversation between God and his people. It's basic to spiritual formation, that basically what you have is God speaking to people in his word, and we respond to people, respond to God through prayer. That's a conversation. That's also just human relationships. It's weird if you go up and say, Uh, I'm going to be best friends with this person, but I'm never going to spend time and talk to this person. I'm just going to read about him in the paper. I'm going to read his diary. I'm going to read his biography. I'm going to follow his vlog, follow his TikTok, and say, I'm going to be best friends and have this sense of intimacy with this person. All the while, you never hang out with him. You never talk to him. And we kind of want to just hear from him and say, hey, we're close, but you never actually have a real interaction with him. Sometimes in the Christian life, that's how we approach it. We say, I want to be close to God, and I want to be real with God, and I want God to know me, and I want to feel spiritually healthy. And then you ask the basic questions. Do you pray to God? No. Do you read your Bible? No. Then how in the world are you supposed to be close to him in the same way that you can't be close to somebody who's human if all you're doing is reading their, reading their blog? It doesn't work that way. That's why Raymond Brown, this commentator, said this. God's word spoke to them. Now the people respond with their words to him words of genuine sorrow and their sins, and of a grateful remembrance of God's grace. And that's what helps us to cultivate this relationship in our confession of adoration. This service had two parts. The first three hours is God's word to them, Bible reading. The second three hours is people's word to God in prayer and confession. Word and prayer are always going to be the twin disciplines of spiritual growth. In a conference that I once saw online years ago when I was maybe like 23 years old, if you know this guy by the name of John Piper, he's probably the most passionate passionate guy for God's glory that you'll ever see or hear or meet if you have that privilege. He's so passionate. And the question that he said he oftentimes gets is how do I maintain this level of passion for God's glory? And he says, word and prayer. And he's exactly right. Let's key off on this confession of adoration, this word in prayer, but in adoration. Verse 5 says this, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Blessed be your glorious name. See, Raymond Brown says, What we see here is this barely livable city of Jerusalem, the encircling enemies, the poverty of the Jewish people, the insignificance of their status, but all of this is transcended in this one glorious reality of of worshiping God. Adoration, it's something we can learn. It's something we can cultivate. It's something that we can, from our perspective, transcend our life circumstances. Adoration is the true heart of prayer. And as Thomas Brown once urged his 17th century contemporaries, he said to them, think magnificently about God. Think magnificently about God. You see, friends, many of us, we have an anemic view of God. It's thin. It's light. It's meaningless. It's what David Wells refers to as the weightlessness of God. And what he means by that is not that God is just light, but the weightlessness of God means that God is irrelevant, unimportant. And many of us, even for you and I who grew up in the church, there's a weightlessness to God, if we're honest about this. There's unimportance. There's nothing that really moves your thinking and your thoughts and priorities in life because we haven't learned this ability to confess our adoration, to glorify God in the specifics. See, the weightlessness of God is very different from what verse 5 tells us, that God has glory. It says, blessed be your glorious name. Glory basically comes from this Hebrew word called kabod. It's heaviness. It means weighty, significant. So from the Weightlessness, weightlessness of God. This passage in verse five says there's a weightiness to God. It's the most important and significant reality for you. See, David Wells goes on and he says this: God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment too benign. His gospel too easy. And his Christ is too common. We've been so inundated with the ordinary that we lost this sense of the weightiness of God. There's no transcendence. There's no adoration. There's no praise. Even in every Sunday, we sing these songs and we sang them before, but the spirit doesn't seem to move in our hearts to praise God. And part of it is because we may not know him through his word. We don't pray to him in our prayers. There's no cultivating of this spiritual life so that we learn how to adore him. The Israelites, you see, They had a giant view of God with incomparable, magnificent glory. Let me give you just a sampling of this. In verse 19, God's great mercies didn't forsake them. In verse 25, they delighted themselves in God's great goodness. That word delight in verse 25 literally means they luxuriated in his goodness. They felt it. It's their heart, mind, and will. They loved him. Because he provided for all their needs. Verse 32, God is great. He's mighty. He's awesome. They're very specific. Even in verses 6 to 15, we see that they adore God specifically as creator and savior. You're one God. You are Lord and you alone in verse 6. He's faithful and righteous in verse 8. We see God's power as he hurled the Egyptians like a stone into mighty waters in verse 11. He's caring and present as a pillar of fire and the cloud in verse 12. He's provider in verse 15. He's forgiving and he's compassionate in verse 17. And on and on it goes throughout this long chapter. They pepper all these wonderful characteristics and attributes of God. Do you know why? Because they had spiritual vitality and they knew him specifically. And when they adored him, it came out in specificity. Now, if you imagine a guy proposing to his girlfriend, he says, I love you, I want to marry you. And what if she says, why do you love me? And he says, because you're good. And she's thinking, what else? You're really good. You're great. What else? You're good. She's not going to feel very honored. And sometimes in a relationship, we have such an anemic weightlessness of God, we don't know all these attributes that I've just read. What do you know about God? He's good. Well, what else? I don't know. He seems all right. He's, he's, he's okay. He's, he's great. But that's not adoration. You could learn to be better. You could cultivate this in its specificity, in all the attributes that we've seen in these verses here, because that takes a skill, and that's an ability that is given to us by the Word of God in His Spirit that we could adore God in this way, that will lead to spiritual rebuilding, restoration, vitality, so you could be empathetic about the circumstances of your life, but transcend to know that this God of glory is in control of your life. What's interesting to note that in verses 6 to 15, there's a paradigm for your life here. There's a model for your life, and do you know what that is? It's just basic grammar. The subject of every sentence in verses 6 to 15 is God. God is a subject of every sentence. And in some ways, that's the model for your life because it's telling us the subject of every sentence of your life that you live should be God, and it's not you because of his glorious name, because he's heavy. There's a weightiness to God, not a weightlessness. Before we go to our second point, I want to just note this. The reason this is so important is because if you understand how you and I are built as people, in the image of God, it means that intrinsically, there's, we're built with a sense of glory. We're built with a sense of transcendence. We want something bigger than ourselves. And so even if you're aspirational, you want to change the world, and you want to experience all that you can be, on some level, that's really good because it tells you you're human. You want something more than just the everyday, mundane aspects of this life because in your heart of hearts, as Kohelet says, God put eternity into your hearts. We're built for something greater than ourselves, something that's transcendent. In other words, we're built to worship. And that's how so we can cultivate this. And if you think about your life, you know that you're really good at transcendence and glory and worship. You know things specifically about the things that you love. You know, we had a, a session of fellowship this past Friday. You know, it was to honor our brother Tom. It was a great time just to fellowship and to pray for him. And one of the things we did was that we go around in a circle and we all just share about how he's been an encouragement for the past 14 years as an elder of this church and excited to see how God will use him in the elder as an elder in the future. But you know what? Everyone has something so specific to say about him because they knew him intimately and they're thankful for him in its specificity of all that God has done to use him to bless the church. In the same way, after that meeting, after we finished praying, We spent about an hour and a half talking about who are the best basketball players of all time. Steph Curry, Jordan, Dwayne Wade, whoever it is. And I was amazed at the knowledge of these guys, of the specifics of basketball. They knew this guy two seasons ago had two blocks and three steals. They knew all the stats. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And I think in the same way, if we're able to do this as Christians... To know God with such specificity, maybe it's not last season, but you know like generations ago, God did this with Israel, and generations ago, God did this with Abraham, and you know the specifics of this, not just the generalities of it, and we could take that to show that we admire greatness in its specifics, then you get something to adoration. Well, some of you don't follow basketball, so you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. Okay? Let's use another example to show that Transcendence is built within us. There's this group called BTS. But seeing this concert, I was like, wow, it is packed in there. I don't even know what BTS stands for. One of the elders says, hey, do you know how many members are BTS? I was like, yeah, five. He's like, no, it's seven. And he says, if you really know BTS, you know the color of their hair, you know their names, and you know their voices, and you know which ones are like higher and lower, who's the main guy and who. You know, in a group of seven, there's always two guys who are just sort of on the outskirts. They just kind of dance in the background. You have to know which character is who. And I saw this concert and clips of it because everyone's posting it on their social media. And it's amazing. You have 12-year-old girls and 45-year-old moms. And they're all dancing the same. They have lights, and they're smiling, and they're yelling, and everyone's going crazy. Now, imagine this. You go to this concert, and this 15-year-old girl walks away. how's was the concert? And she says, it was really good. They don't do that. Why? Because there's something transcendent about it. It was amazing. You'll experience nothing else like this. Why do we say things like this? Because in the heart of man, God put eternity into it. We're built for transcendence. We're built for glory. It comes naturally to us. That concert, which, by the way, is perfectly fine. If you went there, that's great. That's awesome. That's a sense and a picture of what glory and adoration is. But for the Christian, BTS won't lead you out of the circumstances of life. But the worship and adoration of God is. that he's the one that will care for you and provide for you. He's the one that entered into covenant for you. He's the one that justified you and glorified you. And if you want to adore God in its specifics, the best way is to fast forward from Nehemiah and go to a book like Philippians, because in verse 5 where it says, your name, blessed be your name, your glorious name, that fast forwards into Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, in which it says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And if you want to see clarity of who God is and how he's done everything that we've read in chapter 9, you'll look and follow that story to its end in the personal work of Jesus for you. And you'll get a clear picture of how God provided for them and cared for them, forgave them, and didn't forsake them. Can you adore God in that way? Can you specify what he's done for you in all his attributes and goodness? That's the goal. That's when we're talking about spiritual cultivation. But secondly, not only is it adoration, but we also confess our sin. We could look at any part of this chapter. I'm going to focus essentially on verses 26 to 31. But as often is the case, the more clearly you see the character of God in adoration, the more deeply you're going to confess your sin, the more acutely you'll see your sin when you confess your sin in repentance. Our confession of the greatness of God should always lead to a heartfelt and sincere confession of our guilt and sin. Now, Raymond Brown once again says this, A personal encounter with God creates a more alert sensitivity to sin. God's holiness exposes our impurity. His generosity censures our greed. His faithfulness challenges our disloyalty. His love unmasks our self-centeredness. So whenever you have a big picture of God, it always leads to heartfelt repentance. So one way you could think about this, if you're not good at repenting, if you're not good at heartfelt repentance, it may mean it's because you have an anemic, thin, weightless view of God. But people who have a weighty, big view of God are really good at repenting exactly what Raymond Brown has said. One quality of the Israelites' confession that we can learn as the church of Jesus Christ today is what we like to say is authentic. It was genuine, sincere. It's authentic. I like the word authentic. It's real. Now, one simple way to know is that it says there that there is tears and sorrow in verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth. And with, early, and with earth on their heads, dirt on their heads. That's how, they, that's how they mourned. That's how they felt things. They fasted, and they were living in sackcloth, and they put dirt on their heads so they could feel the, the brokenness of this world. There are tears and sorrow. So you know it's authentic. But in the same way as adoration, this is what I want to say. Authenticity is oftentimes seen in specificity. Actually, authenticity and maturity confession of your sin is seen in specificity they weren't confessing in vague generalities they weren't just say please forgive me I'm a sinner which is true they named their sin they itemized it they confessed it specifically without explanation without blame shifting now one of the first lessons of conflict resolution among the people of God in marriage is that when you ask for forgiveness do it specifically name the sin As uncomfortable and ugly as it is for you to look at this and say, I did this, you can't just go up and say, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, I'm a bad person. That's a good start. You want real conflict resolution? It's going to take that hard work to name it, to specify it, to itemize it. And that's exactly what the Israelites do that show that they had authentic confession of sin because it was specific confession of sin. Verse 16, they said they were arrogant. Verse 17, forgot God's works, good works. Verse 18, they created an idol and a golden calf. Verse 26, they killed prophets. Verse 28, they did evil. Verse 29, they acted presumptuously and they broke the law. They owned it. As hard as it was, as ugly as it is, they confessed it in detail. I read this wonderful illustration about confession of sin. You know, it's sort of a camping illustration. But it says, imagine that you see a long tree log on the floor and you want to move that log out. So you take one end of it, and you try to throw it. But because the other end of the log is still on the ground, it doesn't move that far. The way you're going to move that log is if you could carry it and lift it as hard as that is and bear the full weight of the log. Lift it off completely from the ground, and then you can throw it and get it out of the way. And that's the illustration for repentance and confession. Sometimes the way that we confess is just taking one side of that log because it's sort of a pseudo-confession. We blame shift, we give it on the circumstances. I'm sorry I snapped at you, but I didn't have my breakfast here today. You yell at your kids, I'm sorry that I yelled at you, but daddy had a long day at work. Or we see, you say, you yell at somebody, you get angry and you get bitter because there was traffic in the day or the weather wasn't good. And every time you try to just explain it, quote unquote, what you're really doing is just taking the log and you're only taking one side and you're not really confessing it. Because real confession means that you name it, you itemize it, you own it in its specificity, and you bear the full weight of it. No blame shifting. Don't start off and say, I did this because you said that. That's not real confession. That's not real, that's not real uh, repentance of your sin. It's hard to carry the weight of the log. That's the nature of the confession of sin. This is why in John chapter 20, we all know if you are grown up in the church, The rock of the church, Peter, who in the beginning of the gospel says, even if everyone deserts you, Jesus, I'm going to be the one who holds on to you. And if you know the story, Peter, three times out of fear of man, was asked by different people, do you know Jesus who is the Christ? And he says, I don't know him. And he lied. And then finally when they reconciled, they're sitting by the fire. Jesus is resurrected and he goes to Peter and says, do you love me? Of course I do. You know that, Jesus. Well, do you love me? Yes I do. Do you love me? And then it was a little bit more solemn. Maybe his response was three seconds later. Jesus, I love you, you know I do. Why did he ask three times? It wasn't to rub his face in it and to make him feel guilty like probably you and I would do just to make sure that they understand and there's like a vengeance there. Do you know what you did to me? Say it again. Say sorry, that's not Jesus. He says it three times to get Peter to feel the full weight of the log, to contemplate and think with its specifics, three different people, three different times that denied Jesus out of fear of man and for selfish security. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? To carry the full weight of the log. In verses 16 to 31, you see this rhyme and reason. They carry the full weight of the log, this ebb and flow between God and man and man to God. There's a back and forth of man's sin and God's grace, God forgiving and man asking for forgiveness. One way way to notice this wonderful rhythm of grace, this wonderful dance of glory, like I like to call it, one way to see this back and forth between God and people is just simply through looking at the pronouns, There's this wonderful phrase that's basically repeated throughout these verses, this phrase, nevertheless, they. Or sometimes it just says, they. Or sometimes it says, but they. And that phrase, nevertheless, they, is actually referring to the sin of the people. It's scattered throughout these verses when talking about Israel's sin. Verse 16, but they stiffened their neck. Verse 17, they refused. Verse 18, even they made a golden calf. Verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Verse 26 again, they committed great blasphemies. Verse 28, they did evil. And verse 29, they did not obey your commandments. And we're just getting started here. You see that everywhere in this rhyme and reason, this rhythm of dance between God and his people or God at, gives forgiveness and the people ask for forgiveness is highlighted by the pronouns because every time we talk about the full log of Israel's sin is some version of nevertheless they. But this is the brilliance and this is the gospel. For every they, there is a you. Every they is met with a you, where you refers to God. Verse 17, you are a God ready to forgive. Verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them. Verse 20, you gave a good spirit. Verse 21, you sustained them. 22, you gave them kingdoms. 23 You multiplied their children. 27 You heard them from heaven. 28 You delivered them. Verse 29, you warned them. For every repentant, they there is a forgiving you. In this rhythm and rhyme and reason, an ebb and flow, an ebb and flow between God and his people. Friends, if you come to God, with a broken heart, he will forgive you in Jesus Christ because where sin abounds, the you of God's grace abounds even more. And if you learn how to confess your sins in its specificity, does you have a big view of God, then you'll begin to grow and you'll cultivate spiritual vitality. I'm going to end with this. One of the best books that I read during my sabbatical was a guy by the name of Dane Ortlund, who is a PCA pastor in the Chicago area, and he wrote this book about uh, Jesus Christ and his heart to forgive and his heart to reach out to sinners like you and me, called Gentle and Lowly. And in chapter one, giving you just basically the intro. In chapter one of this book, Dane Ortland says, there are four gospels, 89 chapters. There's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. One place where Jesus pulls down the curtain to reveal who he is, and the nature of his work. One place that he says, this is my heart. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. This is what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Jesus' heart. Well, you can see his heart through his actions and his teachings, but it says clearly and specifically, I am gentle and lowly. And when he says gentle there, it's translated as meek or as humble. Dan Nortland says about the word gentle, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The, most, the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And then when he talks about the word lowly, that word lowly is translated sometimes as humble. But lowly, generally in the Bible, in the Gospels, is not talking about the gospel virtue of humility. Lowly, that word in the Gospels, is really talking about destitution. People who have no resources, no money, no clout. Lowly in the Bible, in this word in the Gospels, is talking about the socially unimpressive. The people who are on the sidelines, not the main actor, but really the people who are the set. The people who are actually not the life of the party, but those who are on the sidelines trying to get into the party, that's the people who are the lowly, the marginalized, and the outcast, those who are on the side. And Jesus says, my heart is to be like them. The point is that when Jesus says he's lowly, he's not saying I'm humble, he's saying I'm accessible, that you can come to me. Because all you got to do to meet Jesus is open yourself up to him and receive him. Because Christ is gentle and lowly. He's tender. He's open. He's welcoming. He's eager. He's accommodating. He's understanding. And he's willing. Because for every they of your sin and mine, there's a greater you in Jesus Christ who will forgive. His heart is never outmatched by our sin and failures. He doesn't simply meet us in our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace, as Ortland says. It's what we get out of him. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning is to love you and to forgive you and to open his heart up to you because he says, all who are weary weary, come to me and I will give you rest. I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And if we capture this, it will both give us every reason to adore him and every reason to ask for forgiveness from him. Friends, I encourage you, to come to Jesus this morning. He's eager to forgive. He's waiting for you. He loves you. He's open to you. He's worthy of our praise, and he's powerful enough to forgive us of our sins. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you so much that we see this passage, and we see that people from thousands of years ago come together to study your word and to worship you and confess our sins. And Lord, we thank you that the same God who is here today with us by faith where we could worship and adore you but also ask for forgiveness and receive it in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus is gentle and lowly, that he loves us and he opens his heart up to us and he delights when sinners come to him. And I pray that we would come to him to adore him in the specifics and have a thick, big view of who Jesus is for us and to come with deep, heartfelt repentance of our sins to him. May we be spiritually vibrant, spiritually joyful, spiritually at peace so that we can be empathetic with the circumstances around us but be able to transcend our circumstances as we know that we've been adopted by the grace of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.